This is the Mouthing Off podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company. I'm Amanda Forstrom. I'm Mari Sittner. And I'm Kevin Couchman. We're a theater company based in St. Paul, Minnesota. We love live performance, but we want to reach the widest possible audience. So for every project we do, we make digital content, which all goes into our podcast here. Mouthing Off features guest interviews and discussions with actors, playwrights, theater people, and our collaborators at Badmouth. We also use Mouthing Off to present theatrical readings of the work we're doing. So wherever you are in the world, you can enjoy Badmouth's work. Find us online at badmouthtc.com and on Twitter at badmouthtc. Enjoy the show. Hey, and we're back with Mouthing Off, a theater podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company here in St. Paul, Minnesota, adjacent to Minneapolis, Minnesota, which some call the Portland of the Midwest. And I am joined by Mari Sittner. Mari, how are you? Doing great. I was just about to say that it's mighty crunchy over here. Very <laughs> yes, of course. Mari is in Minneapolis and, and also joined by Amanda Forstrom. Amanda, how are you? I'm good. I feel like we all should be drinking a microbrew of some sort, you know, or have a contest of Portland versus Twin Cities microbreweries. Mm, I think we should. Mm. Portland would win. I'm, I feel pretty certain. Okay, here we go. Them's fighting words. <laughs> and you can hear, now you can hear Brandon McCoy, who is the playwright we're going to be talking with about his fabulous play, Other Life Forms, and he's in Portland, Oregon. Brandon, how are you? I am wonderful. It is a pleasure to be here. I've been listening and, and uh, I'm just so concerned that I'm going to ruin your momentum. You're doing such a great job. This is, this is more pressure than when I got married because I thought for sure she was going to leave, you know? Like I thought for sure she was going to wise up at the altar, but no. And you guys haven't wised up either. You've invited me here. I'm so pleased to be here. I really am. Thank you. You can always get divorced, but the theater <laughs> is forever. <laughs> yeah. Nobody told me that before I signed up. That's the problem. Right. <laughs> well, and of course, Brandon's talking about the other plays that we've released so far digitally in our series, uh, uh, Live and Unlocked, which we're doing at Waldman Brewery in, in St. Paul here. We're doing five readings, and uh, his play is the third in the series, and it's called Other Life Forms. Now, Amanda, you... You recommended this this play, I think, and you said, "Ah, let's let's bring, uh, you know, let's let's ask Brandon if he wants to share his play." So, what's your history with Brandon with this play? How did how did you you all meet? Uh, what happened there? Oh, pull up a chair. What's our history, Amanda? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'm regretting it all. <laughs> um, no, I Brandon, I, I'm not even sure how we met. I think it might have been through your wife actually at uh keegan theater uh in dc which is an amazing theater and they sort of focused on irish work but they also do newer plays and they brandon and his wife are company members there and so they produced a couple of brandon's plays and they're just really amazing have a lot of heart and soul humility and and humor to them which is just lovely and we actually worked together 
on my last show before the pandemic because it got shut down. Um, we got four performances Realist- in. <laughs> yes, we opened. We opened. Yeah, that's right, we did. And Yes, and it was called uh, The Realistic Joneses, and that was also a fantastic play. So I've worked with Brandon as, as an actor and read his plays. And wh- I mean, what else? We, I also we did, took a, a taught, I taught a class for you, I believe. That's right. That's right. We it did, was horrible. Uh, we did Picasso de la Panagile together. We did. We did. We also did uh, Miss Bennett Christmas at Pemberley together. I mean, why wow. am I the only one that remembers our history? <laughs> Amanda is making a face that says she does not remember that show. <laughs> to be fair, I I was the replacement for the lead of the show. Yeah. And I also happened to be very sick, so there was a lot of NyQuil involved. I do. Well, that's a DayQuil. True. But but you know, I think I think it went all right. Amanda Brandon, I, I'll ask you. I no, you were wonderful. You were wonderful. Uh, oh, thank you. I, I, I will say, and this is, this is true, Amanda is one of my favorite people in the entire world. We did several things together, even though she doesn't remember, remember most of it. Uh, we, you know, the theater is a place where if you are wired like I'm wired, you can sometimes feel like you're an outsider. Uh, mm-hmm. And Amanda is, is somebody that, that we had a really quick kinship together, uh, easy to talk to. And uh, I really enjoyed our time together and your husband as well. Uh, we just, we really hit it off. And, and um, that was the sort of thing about being in that community that I liked the most was people like you. Yeah. And I, and I like you too, good Kevin. People. I like hey, you too, Kevin. Yeah. I, I like right. you a lot. I directed oh, one of your wonderful. plays. Yes, you did. You directed a reading of Moderation, which it is also fantastic. How, so much fun. Moderationplay.com. And so you're a, you're a director in addition to, to being a playwright. What do you identify yeah. with first? Oh, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I came, I came by directing through acting and I came to playwriting through directing. And it was like, uh, you know, I'd done enough shows as an actor where I was like, well, I know what I don't want in a director, right? So I think that I, think that I can steal from the people that, that I've enjoyed the most or that I got the most out of the process to give it a shot. And then when I was working as a director and I started to dig into these plays a little bit, I thought, I wonder, I wonder if I could do that. Uh, I wonder if I could write something that I would want to work on if I were directing oh. it. And, oh. and that's sort of how I came, hmm. I came to all of this. And I enjoy different things about each of them. I'll say that surprisingly, the least amount of pressure is being an actor. Um, huh. Being a playwright is the worst for pressure. It's wonderful when you're writing it. And then when they start to produce it, you're like, oh, shit, I really wish I hadn't done this. Why did I do this? <laughs> you get a bit of a queasy feeling. And I had forgotten it because of the plague and all the Zoom readings. I, the feeling isn't the same. No, it's, no not. it's not. And then we did a reading of moderation as part of this series. And suddenly some of my closest friends and family and everybody were gathered you know, and it's a small room. We're not talking about a hundred people here, but there were enough people who I really care about. Never mind the the actors. And I just had that little that little feeling. Yeah, in your tummy. Your tummy. And you're like, oh, what are we doing here? Other life forms was the first play of mine that was produced professionally. Okay, I was going to ask next. Yeah, Good. the the preview performance of that. I mean, I lost ten pounds in water weight that day. I was just sweating. I was, I was just sweating. I was just a, 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 
a sack of sweat that day. Mm-hmm. And when they when they laughed the first time, it was it was a relief akin to my child being born. It was mm-hmm. like, oh thank God that yes. people are at least gonna laugh at that one joke. <laughs> at least they're gonna <laughs> laugh once. Uh, but it ended up being an amazing experience. But the buildup to it was was horrifying about all of the things that could go wrong. You know, sure, so. yes, and sometimes some nights they do. Some uh, nights somebody yes, they forgets sure their forgets their line, or they sure do. Yeah, there's plenty <laughs> of ways. There are more ways that a play can go wrong than uh, a play can go right. <laughs> right, sure. and, and, and as actors, you're like, well, that's the thing I love about the theater, right? Like it's alive, it's organic, and it's different every night, and like shit's gonna go wrong, and we're gonna figure it out. But the playwright is somewhere going, please just say the words, please God, just say the words. Right. So, so right. that, so, so that I, I really don't identify as any of those things. It's just wh- whichever way the wind's blowing at that moment, I'll, I'll do it if you'll, if you'll pay me. Theater maker, <laughs> theater right. guy. That's yeah. Right. Well, let's... and he's a musician as well. Oh, yeah. is that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually I, uh, the first couple of directing gigs that I got. I think I got them because I said, "Look, I'll save you money on a sound designer if you hire me. I'll write mm-hmm. the music for this, and and you'll have you'll have a score that goes with the show." And so, yeah, I've leaned on my music a lot actually to help me both as an actor and a director for sure. Uh, you were a musician prior to coming into the theater? Is that yeah. something that goes way back? Mm, yeah. I've played the piano uh, most of my life. I, I say it's the greatest decision that anybody ever made for me. Uh, and it really is. My mom said, this one is going to do something artistic. And and sure, I mean, I was eight. I didn't know any better. Uh, but I picked it up really quickly. And then when I was in high school and was really interested in having a girlfriend, I realized that Mozart sonatas weren't getting it done, right? So I was like, I got to play Wonderwall on the guitar in order to get a girl. Ah, yeah, right? true. Yeah, it still so, works. So I, t- <laughs> so I taught myself to play the guitar and then that came pretty easily and I picked up a co- uh, couple of other instruments. And then um, my first actual performing gig though was not acting. <clears throat> I was in school for acting, but the first thing I got paid to do as a performer was uh, stand-up comedy and my act was musical. I would write these uh, really, really silly broad songs about things like the Amish and, <laughs> I, and I would sing them and, and, and it worked. And I did that for a little while and it was, uh, it was really fun. And now that I think about it, 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 it shaped a lot of what I do now, I think. Hmm. I think. Yeah. Well, it's performance. Uh, and so I can see that the one would lead to the other. Yeah, yeah, sure. sure. Mm, yeah. Well, can we talk about other life forms? So we have yet to record our uh, reading of it, but that will be posted before this interview. I've read the play now a, a few times, so I'm prepared to to, to dig into it. And uh, I think the the uh, the structure is very fun and uh, and fascinating. It sounds like maybe it wasn't the first play you wrote, but it was the first play that was professionally produced. So I guess, give me the timeline. Uh, What did it take for you to arrive at this play? And and what was the germ of other life forms? It was uh, a period. So 2012, I believe uh, I had a, I had a really nice period as an actor there where I was doing shows. I had three shows in a row, back to back to back. 
Um, and this was in Washington, D.C., where I lived and worked for 17 years. It's a great theater community. It's great. Uh, but with each show that I did out of those three, the content got progressively drearier and drearier. As, <laughs> and, and by the third play, I, I, I felt the weight of, of, of being a person in these shows. And so I looked around at what was being done in D.C., and I was like, shit, nobody's doing comedy right now. Why? Why? I remember why this. this I remember this period in the theater. Everybody was going to save the world. Right. That's why they're all going? They're activists, Brandon. That's the important. <laughs> thing. I believe the correct term is artivist. Artivists. Wow. <laughs> oh, oh, wonderful. That's the name oh, of my hey. new company. Important. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Just, Just, David to me. <laughs> no, that, that should be the name of your microbrewery in Portland. <laughs> Yes. Good. Just, should, but we're just, gonna do readings in the back room, you know. So. Give me, give me ninety seconds. I got to go update my Twitter bio. I'm kidding. <laughs> That's exactly no, right. Never mind. Yeah. Yes. No. I'm, but I think we're talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, but great. So you were like, oh my gosh, there's no, and I noticed this too. So yes. Yeah. So Can I started. You explain a little bit yeah. more specifically what you mean by dreary content, because I don't know what. Like, what do you mean by dreary? I think the plays themselves. Well, I don't think I know the plays themselves are really good. Uh, and, and the productions were very well received. So it wasn't, it wasn't that the, that the experience of doing the play was bad. It's what the play was about. Uh, I did a play at this time, uh, at a Jewish theater company in DC, which without getting too much into it, uh, was an allegory for the Holocaust like that, you know? So when you get to the end of that, you're like, oh man, people really suck. <laughs> that just sucks because Jews are so funny. <laughs> I know, so Everything right? we do is about the Holocaust, but we're so funny. <laughs> so by the end of that, you know, I feel <laughs> guilt and shame and, and I feel really, really heavy. Uh, but you're right, Kevin, like nobody was doing it. Everyone, everyone was trying to save the world. And I will say this about DC, because I don't live there anymore, so what the shit? I don't care. I, it's a theater town to a fault that takes itself really seriously. Right, right Amanda? I mean, it, it's like yeah. it's a place that I think because the government is there, right? That's good because it supports the theater, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a very serious town, wouldn't you say? Very serious. And I, I think they know who their audience is, and I think there's an even more impetus for them to – uh, organize a, a season of a season of change, a season of activism because of who's going to come to these plays. But at the same time, sometimes I think they lose sight of why they're doing what they're doing. It's like, oh, right. people want to be relaxed together and laugh and have fun and just kind of, you know, totally forget about Bill HR 35B thousand for $40 billion. <laughs> That's right. And, and we could talk about this later, but I, again, like the stand-up comedy, this discovery of DC really shaped me as a writer too, about what I actually wanted to do that was different, I felt, than what my contemporaries were, were doing. Um, so anyway, after this, I was just like, is it, is it they're not producing it or are people not writing it? And I'm like, I'm just going to assume it's the second one because that's a good excuse for me to write a play. Um, and I wrote two really quickly, a play called Tanner, and then this one, Other Life Forms. And it was an experiment to see if I could finish a play. But also, I had these ideas rolling around in my head and was like, I think I can make something clever and fun and funny about this. Let's see if I can do it. 
Um, this play in particular came out of came out of of this like introspection where I realized that I've and I sort of said this earlier. I've always kind of felt uncomfortable in my own skin, and I've always felt on the outside of things. Whatever I've done, like I made friends, I made connections, but but I've never really felt like I fit in politically personally, uh, uh, in any way. So other life forms is, is a play about chemistry and love, which is, you know, been done a million times, but from my point of view, looking at it and the things that I don't understand, I've always felt like an observer like Jeff in the play. And I thought, Oh, well, that's interesting. What if there's a character that can't understand it in the way that humans do? and creates an experiment to try to understand it. And that's where the, the impetus of that idea came about. Uh, and it gave, me the, it gave me the vehicle to, to, to write this play. Mm. Yeah, what was your process like? Did you sit down and write it in a month? Did you work on it over, how long did it take? Yeah. The first draft was really fast. Once I had the idea of Spoiler alert, the alien. Okay. Watch, or uh, rather listen to That's the right. recording first, uh, <clears throat> because there will be spoilers here, and this will all be on the podcast. You, you won't be able to miss it. If you're listening to this, you, you got this far. Pause, go back and listen to the recording. Yes. Yeah, and forget that I said there's an alien in it. It's a really, <laughs> really funny reveal. <laughs> it's called Other Life Forms, so I don't know. <laughs> oh, Kevin, Kevin, you'd be shocked at how people are... like. The original poster of this had a literal alien face on the poster. And, and we did the show and the audience is, what? <laughs> An alien? That's why I love the theater. People, Me too. Uh, adults go to be duped. They go <laughs> That's to right. feel like children again. It's the I've best. Said, I've said this a million times uh, because I, I also teach theater stuff. And I, I tell my students, Good theater is like a magic trick. It's not like we are duping them into like the response of how did you do that, right? Mm -hmm. Like how did you make me give over to this thing that is really not real, you know? Mm -hmm. I I think a really good magic trick is akin to a really good play, right? It's like, oh, you took me somewhere. How did you do that? And I love Mm -hmm. that. I love that notion. The beginnings of this play though were, so, so the first draft was quick. But the idea of a character uh, that, that can't understand love was hard to come by. I, there is a version somewhere on my computer uh, of the character of Jeff, who he's, he's essentially like a sociopath. <laughs> like he, he, he doesn't have real feelings and he's interested by that. Uh, and it, it was going in a direction that I just didn't feel like I could see through. <laughs> so I was literally sitting at home one day watching BBC America, I guess. And uh, <laughs> Mr. Bean came on and I had watched, I, I love Rowan Atkinson. I love physical comedy. I think he's a great physical comedian. Um, and I watched Mr. Bean when I was a kid all the time, but apparently I never paid attention to the opening credits ever because in the opening credits, it's like an English town square and the camera like pans over to a piece of like a brick sidewalk and a giant circle of light emanates and Mr. Bean just 
falls out of the air and flat on his face. <laughs> and I literally went, fucking hell, he's an alien. I just thought he was a weird British guy. He's an alien. That makes so much sense. And I went straight to the computer and wrote this play. Um, and it took, it took like a week. Now, obviously, the development process has taken a very, very long time. But I, the first draft of this play, I think, was 20, 2014, 2015, something like that. The opening act, I guess we'll call it. I don't know how you formally think about it, but the the, the two dates yeah. juxtaposed to one another. It just feels like such a tight, tidy structure. You could do an entire play like that and it yeah. could be magnificent. Uh, is that something that you, you poached from somewhere else or how did that idea come to you? The the dating part? Well, the, the idea of like jumping between two, yeah. two dates like that. I just think that's... I, I really like this, that stroke structurally. Yeah. It's kind of the way my brain works. Um, one of the things that I've noticed now that I have like a dozen plays or so that I've written is, first of all, I'm drawn to comedy because 75% of them are comedies and that's what I have the most fun writing. Uh, but I also think in, in, in terms of efficient and fast. My, my brain goes first on... This, this notion of, of how we can have things kind of crash together. And that mm. happens sort of haphazardly a little bit. Um, it's not that I'm not prone to, you know, people espousing ideas. I, I, I do that, but I tend to think that, well, people in this world talk very quickly and they yes. get through it very quickly. And these things kind of happen accidentally. They're mirroring each other. I just think that that's interesting. I, I don't remember ever seeing that. Mm. And, and, and stealing it. I think it's more just along the lines of, of what I do. There's a couple of plays where I've, I've really leaned on overlap. And I, I, th I think there's two reasons for that. One, it gives the playwright the opportunity to go, and let's flash forward in time. You know? <laughs> I don't want to write any more of this. So let's just skip ahead and we'll have something else happen that's related to it. I, I, and then there's also this element of, of theatricality to it. It's, it's interesting from an experimental point of view of seeing the same thing, a controlled subject doing essentially the same thing and it having a completely different results. And I, th I think that's both fascinating, but really funny also. Yeah, it is. It's the, that contrast and everybody knows immediately everybody's everybody in the theater has been on a first date yeah. and can relate to it. And everybody immediately knows what the stakes are. Everybody mm -hmm. comes with a whole battery of assumptions about the proper behavior. Right. Um, and right. so it's, yeah, I, I really, I really like it. And I, and I, I didn't mean to accuse you of sort of poaching it, but like in my case, it's like, I was thinking about moderation, how moderation is just uh, um, the dumb waiter. And I only discovered later, the, oh, right. it's, a, it's like the dumb waiter, you know, right. the, the, the reason I know it's, well, I, honestly, when I was reading it, I was like, ooh, this is such a good structural idea. I should... <laughs> <laughs> and no, hey, listen to me. Yeah, boom, boom. I just, absolutely I, I, no offense. I steal yeah. all the time. <laughs> you don't think I was reading your play going, what, yeah. can, I take, what can I take right. out of this? Yeah, I, yeah okay. absolutely. That's how it works. <laughs> um, but then you, obviously it changes from that. And then you, you, do, you have these rather long monologues from, uh, from Jeff. Did you, when you were writing this, and Jeff is the alien, um, when you were writing this, did you 
do anything in particular to, to channel your inner alien? Was it more, what, what did you do? Did you do some crazy, like put on a hat or? <laughs> tin foil, a lot of tin foil. Tin foil. Yeah. 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 I, um, yeah, I did have to embrace certainly um, you know, there's, there's a line in the play that happens uh, twice, I think, uh, where Jeff says it first and then another character says it back. But the alien says, uh, you know, somebody essentially says real life doesn't work that way or life sucks. And he goes, who decided that? Who decided that life has to suck? That it can't be like a storybook or a movie or, or, or whatnot. And those are the kinds of questions that I say to myself. You know, we, we have these dispositions. We have these things that we just go like, well, that's just the way things are. But we don't go, but why? Why is it that way? Who decided that? Like, why does it have to be that way? And I think that's a little bit of the alienness. And then when, when Jeff starts the direct address in Act 2, for me, it, it served two purposes. Um, he does this... He has some cool sci-fi magical moments in act one. And then in act two, I'm like, what's his extra thing that he can do? Oh, he can talk to the audience. The other characters can't, but he can. And that's going to be his thing that makes him super special in act two. So it was that. And then it also just gave me the opportunity to, to look at the audience and ask questions. Um, and, and I guess to a certain degree, it are the questions that I would want to ask. Hmm. There, there's a speech uh, near the end of the play where he talks about public speaking. And he says, mm -hmm. um, and if you haven't heard the play, I know I'm doing a great job of selling it right now. But anyway, <laughs> he, he goes, uh, the number one fear amongst all humans is public speaking. Have you heard that before? And why is that? Why is it not shark attacks or earthquakes or wormholes? You know, like, like what is it about public speaking? And then he says something, to the, to the degree of, uh, is, it, is it just a fear of failure? Is it just a fear of being wrong and somebody saying you were wrong? I think that that's interesting because we say, yeah, oh yeah, public speaking is really scary. Why? <laughs> Who decided that? Who decided that? And if we actually break it down into what actually makes us fearful about that sort of thing, it makes it so much more easy to overcome. Um, and, and those are the kinds of things that I'm interested in. And Jeff gave me a, certainly gave me a, a vessel to ask those questions in a way that wasn't trite, I hope, you know, or contrived. Yeah. yeah. I like that big structural shift. Uh, no, we have no monologue. And then midway through the play, big surprise. Here we yeah. go. Yeah. I always enjoy moves like that in the theater. The theater gets away with doing that where film very rarely does. I think I think Act Two, if it's a two-act play, should should be able to stand on its own, right? Like uh, as a, but but it you know it needs to be relative <laughs> to the first act, probably. Hmm. Uh, but but it does need to have its own thing because if it's just Act One again, then I, then especially in a comedy, I think people are going to run out of out of steam. You know, hmm. Hmm. how can I keep the audience? just a step behind us is always the question I'm asking. I don't want them to be too far behind, but just like a half step behind so that they continue to laugh and engage in it. Uh, and if you go too hard into what you were doing before, I think, I think you run the risk of them going, okay, I get it. 
I get it. Mm-hmm. I know what this is. You know? Yeah. Do you have a driving theory of comedy? What do you think makes good comedy? Yeah. Boy. Can we do like a three-part series? I mean, because like... <laughs> I, the answer is no. <laughs> well, I, I mean, no, but I, this is what I'll say. I think that this is good podcast uh, content. I think the big thing for me about comedy is, especially in the theater, is just how looked down upon it is. Right. Generally speaking, right? Like, it doesn't win prizes. Young playwrights aren't uh, mm-hmm. hankering to write the hot new right. comedy, even though historically, I mean, nobody was more revered in the theater than Neil Simon. Right, uh, right. And, or go yeah. back even further, like Moliere. Moliere. Wrote, right. Wrote these super funny plays that were really scathing about society and people and people were laughing at it and learning something. Right. But we are Shakespeare too. Shakespeare's hilarious. Yeah, absolutely. But we are, and we were hinting at this earlier, I think, uh, talking about how serious DC is. It's like, yeah, I'll share this. I don't care. So uh, I, what I'll say as a disclaimer is, is that I really respect the people that the story is about and I've worked with them and I think that they're really good. But what I'm about to tell you is something I thought was really ill-advised. Spill the tea, Brandon. There you go. There you go. <clears throat> so there's a, uh, a large-ish theater company in D.C. that was going through a major renovation. And they were using this opportunity to kind of reimagine what the theater was going to be once they came back from the renovations. And the Washington Post did a big story on them, big like two-page two full pages on this where they were interviewing uh, the, the, the higher ups, the people involved. And it talked about all these amazing things that they were going to do, these, these educational initiatives, which I loved, and, and they were going to be commissioning new plays and it was going to become a home for new plays. I'm like, I love that too. And then at the very end of the article, there was something that to this day just, just absolutely sticks into my gut. I, I'm paraphrasing a little. But this is essentially what it said. The guy said, well, we could do noises off and sell out the audience. But we're not going to do that kind of play. Yeah. And that was like the end of the article. Mm. Well, let's unpack that for a second, shall we? So (laughs) first of all, that seems to suggest that you think that noises off is easy. That play is fucking impossible. (laughs) It is so hard. It is the best structured play I have ever read in my entire life. And I dare you to find one that's, that's, that's more structurally sound than that play. Two, and as an actor, incredibly difficult. And director, have, I mean, just everyone in, that works on that show has to be so incredibly precise. Yeah. And, yeah. You have to be an athlete to do that play. Mm-hmm. You have to have mental mm-hmm. athleticism and physical athleticism to do that play. So there's that. Then there's this other part of you could do that play and sell out the house. So you don't want to do that. <laughs> like, so what you're saying is, is that you don't want to sell out the house or you don't want to sell out the house with that play. So, so what is it? Is it that that play makes people happy and that's what you don't want to do? Is that what it is? And then there's this third notion of, like you said earlier, saving the world. We're not saving the world by doing noises off. 
And we know better than the audience what right. they want slash need to see. Oh, fuck you. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, just not, yeah. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that. Not only is it short-sighted, mm. but, but it's also, it, it, it's the opposite of like being fully artistic. You know, mm. you got to appeal to people on multiple levels. If it's just political, if it's just for societal change, and it's never for escape, mm. then, then going to the theater now becomes going to school. Yes. Who yeah. wants to do that? I we don't call want to go it back to school. Broccoli, yeah, Kevin has a broccoli. great... Sorry, Amanda, go ahead. No, I said Kevin has a great name for it. Go ahead. Broccoli theater, eat your broccoli. <laughs> yeah, take your, take your vitamins theater. Your cod right. liver oil. Yeah, yeah. So I, my, mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Go on, Mari. Oh, everything that you've said, it's so resonant with things that do come up again and again in other life forms. I mean, this idea that nobody wants to do comedy because happiness is not enough. Throughout other life forms, you're constantly having this debate about whether or not love is enough. Right. So there comes a point in the theater where happiness and joy, it kind of, it has to be enough or who's going to come back. The other part of, yeah, Mm -hmm. the other part of that is hope too, right? Like I'm, I'm most drawn to plays that by the end of it, say something similar to what other life forms says. Jeff looks at the audience and said, right before he gets, goes back to his home planet, he says, he looks at the audience and says, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I, when I wrote that, I didn't think anything about it, but I, you would not believe the amount of people that came up to me afterward and said, that's exactly what I needed to hear. You're going to be okay. That's exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. Never mind the fact that like people looked at the relationships and go like, yeah, and that was me once upon a time. Well, great. And, and like, I'm glad you can see yourself in the play. That's good. I don't think you have to, but if you do, that's good. But the fact that they're surprised that a play is saying you're going to be okay, I think says something about the kinds of plays we do, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And there's yeah. room for that. I'm not saying there isn't room for that. I'm, I'm a fan of that stuff. Um, but I started writing plays because of that weight. So maybe we should just be a little more balanced about it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think the theater is, there is no the theater. It's, it's, it's wholly conceptual. It's whatever we decide what it, you right. know, that, what it is in a given evening. Uh, and I think that sometimes get, gets lost because the Overton window of institutional American theater is so narrow and it feels like it gets narrower and narrower and narrower uh with each passing year as the political landscape becomes more uh heated and and difficult and uh so yeah it's great but but one of the beautiful things about our current time and and the theater i guess for all eternity is that you can do it you can write a script you can get some friends together in a church basement you're not going to win a tony but who cares? Right. <laughs> right? Who cares? Like, who really cares? I don't, yeah. I personally don't care. Uh, so yeah, and do it. And then, and then you find like-minded people and you build your tribe and you make your own little surrogate family out of your theater friends and other people think you're weird, but who cares? Uh, and you, yeah, and you just continue to do what you do. And I love that about the theater. Uh, I want to ask one more question and then uh, I feel like I've been asking quite a lot. So I want to open it up to Amanda and Maury more, but uh, this is, um, uh, pressing to me. Do you have an elevator pitch for other life forms? 
how do you describe this to somebody? Like what, what is, what, what should we put on the card next time? Uh, yeah, but I'm, yes, but this is part and parcel, I think, to, to some of the issues that I come up against, which is, yeah, my, my, <laughs> well, I, what I can, this is actually a really good example. When we, we were doing publicity for this, uh, the Keegan theater who produced this, um, they do new plays and, you know, the, the notion is always, we're doing this because we should, uh, and you know, we're going to have to find out some way to pay for it because it will not make money. It's a new play. It won't, it won't make money. And that seems to be fairly true amongst uh, all the plays that they do. So let's do some publicity. And I did a bunch of interviews about it. And um, the first, the first interview I did, they asked me sort of a stock question, which is, you know, like, what do you hope the audience gets from this? Like, what do you hope they take away? And like an idiot, I hadn't prepared an answer. I should have, but I didn't. And so I just told them the truth, which was, I hope they have a really good time. I hope they watch this and they laugh. And if they see themselves, great. But I hope when they leave, they go like, that was fun. That was fun. And Kevin, every interviewer I said that to could not have been more disappointed. They were so, like literally the first, I said that. And the first interviewer went, uh, 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 okay. Like, wh what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? They got, so, the, they got the sitter out. They're paying the sitter 30 bucks an hour. Right. The, Right. They're taking a night off and you want to hit them over the head with an editorial about <laughs> the reason we need to be involved in Yemen or something. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's we know exactly what we're talking about here. And there is room for that play. I'm, I think Sarah Kane right. is fantastic. Right. There's so much great, right. heavy political writing. But my gosh. Play a different note sometimes. So my elevator pitch, my elevator pitch is this is a. This is a, a, a quick, fun comedy about chemistry and love from the perspective of someone who can't understand it. Very essentially, cool. Essentially what I'm saying. All Which right. I think is, is pretty relatable. Yeah, and if you're yeah. listening out there, that's a good pitch, so just let me know. Brandon-McCoy.com. <laughs> Send me a letter. This, this is fantastic. Available. Yes, and you can certainly produce this play uh, if you want to. Brandon-McCoy.com. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you got your plugs in already. And we yeah, are Badmouth. Yeah, Badmouth Theater Company. BadmouthTC.com. <laughs> and uh, Mari, Amanda, what, what's on your mind? Your minds. Yeah, enough softballs. Hit me. Let's do this. <laughs> Go for it, Mari. Well, I was just curious if you think that that kind of dreary mindset is totally political do you think that there's any other kind of artistic impetus besides that instinct to save the world and to impress you know your governmental audience or do you think that there's something else that's driving that because i know that you obviously have things to say about <clears throat> the politics of the dc theater scene as sure. you do have their politics are discussed in the play heavily. right in a very funny way, but do you think that there's something like even deeper going on there? I think there's competition going on amongst the theaters of who can be the most, you know, cutting edge on these, these issues. I think that's part of it. So I do think that there, <laughs> I think that there is a, a serious competitiveness of seriousness to a degree. Um, and so I think there's that. I, I, I certainly think that politics are deeply involved. Uh, 
I also think, though, it is just a little bit kind of how theater people are conditioned to be. You know, um, like when I was coming up in, in t- when I was training as an actor, there was so much about what I was being taught that it seemed like they were, they were trying really hard to get me to take it seriously. It's like, this is important. You need to take this seriously. I'm like, I am. Why are you saying that? I am. I want to do this. Why do you keep saying that to me? So I think that there's a little bit of a, a, of a notion that there is a select few number of people who get it. They get this about what we're doing and what we should be doing. And if you're a part of us, welcome to the club. And if you're not, go watch Netflix. You know, I, I think that there's an exclusionary kind of elitism that happens in this idea, which becomes issue driven. Mm-hmm. And not everyone is like this. There are many, many theater companies out there who do balance things out. Um, and there are artistic directors who value that. In my experience, it's twice as hard to get a comedy produced as it is to get a drama. I wrote this other play called West by God, um, which is about growing up in West Virginia. And it, it's, it's a play that, that examines the urban rural divide. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Keegan all, already had the rights to do that. And, and because they had done other life forms and, and Susan Ray was so good to me, the artistic director at Keegan. She's amazing. She's amazing. She's amazing. Uh, and really kind of nurtured me through that process. When Other Life Forms was done, my phone didn't ring very much. When West by God was done, my phone rang off the hook for a little while. I was like, ooh, what's this play? We, 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 we would like to take a look at this. And that's just by the time that it's happening and what it's about. And, and great, right? Like yeah, it's a conversation that should be, you know, we should be talking about classism in, and, and how rural Americans are, are perceived and, and treated. Yeah, I, that's why I wrote it. I wanted to have that conversation. But looking back on it, there's a, there's a value attached to that serious conversation differently than there is the, the silly one, right? The one mm. that people are supposed to laugh at. Mm. I think there's- Yeah, I, oh, go ahead, Kevin. No, after you, Mark. Or uh, Amanda, sorry. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I think not only is there, you know, a kind of a stigma against comedy, the the comedic content of the plays, but I also think there's sort of an inability to laugh, like theater companies and and everyone to to laugh at themselves. So you know, ooh, we tried this new play and ooh, it was kind of a flop, but hey, we tried it that's okay. Like we're just, we're, we're putting our art art that we're interested in and we believe in and, you know, we're doing a, you know, some brave stuff that we don't have the stamp of like, Oh, this was on the West end or like this was off Broadway or this right. is going to off Broadway because we have these very serious people attached to it. So we know <laughs> it will go to off Broadway, you know, and the money attached to it. Uh, I, I, I definitely think that there's a lot of that as well. Um, but I have a question about, West by God and also sort of the artist that you are. <clears throat> I feel like there's a very interesting correlation between your, your rural upbringing. And I think this is maybe why, why we connected right away. Cause I'm, I was brought up in a very rural area and yeah. sort of the, the heart of your plays and the, this beautiful simplicity. And I'm wondering how those 
or how that in West by God sort of went over with an urban audience. And if that's a, something that is an essence in all of your plays. Yeah, I think so. I hadn't thought about it before in that, in that sense, but I do. Yeah, I do think that's it. You know, life is simpler when you grow up in a place like that. It's not better or worse, it, but it is simpler. And I think that when you have that kind of an upbringing, it, 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 as an adult, it draws your attention to, or it can <clears throat> draw your attention to things in a, in a slightly different way. Than, than maybe if you grew up in an urban place. I don't know. I wasn't growing but But I do know that, like, I would not survive my household without a sense of humor, first of all. Because, I mean, I grew up in the most Italian-Irish family you've ever seen. Like, it, it was just loud. And, and to come above the fray, you had to have something interesting and, <laughs> and, frankly, funny to say. So there was that. And then on the other thing was just valuing people. In a way that I that I didn't experience once I moved away, you know the I, I remember this this um, my my grandfather died in the middle of a, uh, a a horrible blizzard, and the ground was frozen solid, and dozens upon dozens of people, without saying anything, go out and clear the roads themselves, and go to the cemetery and thaw the ground so that he can be buried. <laughs> like that happens in West, that happens in rural places. It does. Not that it doesn't happen in other places, but like people don't even have to be asked. They do that. So I do think that I'm drawn to kind of just like the simple beauty of things and the simple beauty of people. What I find funny is that people keep getting in their own way which Ben in this place certainly does, right? Like he, his whole, his hubris, his flaw is that he, he has all of this stuff. He's just unwilling for whatever reason to admit it. And I think that's hilarious. <laughs> like I it's think that's It's very funny. These dates uh, and, and that trajectory that he goes on are, are hilarious. Yeah, I can't wait to do it. And I think it's going to be fun to do it online here, digitally. Uh, we're right. going to work on really getting it to be uh, snappy. I'm directing it and it's just going to be go, 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 go. Uh, so that should be a lot of fun. And then in the room too, I can't wait. Uh, I, I don't really know. I mean, both of both of the first two plays we've done have comic elements, but I, I don't know that they're wholly comic the way the way that this is. Uh, certainly one good marriage is extremely oh, dark. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, now, and Mari, it sounds like you may have to step away. So I, I want to let you get a, a final question. And if you have something, we'll go for another 10 or 20 minutes. Well, I just had to step away to let somebody in. But oh, you, oh, so curious. you're, oh, you're with us. Okay. I'm okay. With, go. I'm back with you now. Oh, great. Oh, sweet. But I was just kind of curious how many are of these dates are based on of these two dates are based on your dating experience? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think they're probably an amalgamation of several instances I had. I, I only had one real dating period in my life, which was in college, uh, was uh, in undergrad. That was the only time in my life where, uh, I don't know what happened because I've certainly lost it, where I had the guts to approach people in that kind of way. 
and and uh, I also had friends that always just wanted to set me up with somebody. It was always like, oh my God, you would be perfect with so-and-so. Why hasn't this happened yet? Let's get you in a restaurant, you know? And uh, I remember there being instances where people would describe this person to me and I would go like, fuck, yes, this sounds great. This sounds great. You know, as long as she... Uh, you know, uh, you know, as long as she doesn't look like Igor or something, we're going to be good. This is going to be great. So I'm sorry if that offended anybody. A- anyway, so, and then, it, and then you show up and it goes horribly, absolutely horribly. But on paper, this seems really, really good. You know, one of the best dates I ever had in my life uh, in college, I, I, I was set up with a, 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 a young woman who was deaf. And she had come to see some shows at Marshall. And I was like, oh, well, that, that's interesting, right? Like, how are we going to be able to communicate? It's really cool. It's really cool. And we had the best time. I mean, we had the best time. And we were able to communicate, which was, and no one would have ever thought that that would have worked out, you know? I think that this idea that, 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 um, that people are supposed to work or not is both fascinating and ridiculous. Because it's ultimately chemistry, right? It's like when you look at these people on paper, that doesn't matter because paper's not people. <laughs> paper's not life. So what does the energy do to each other? You know, what do, how, how do you stimulate each other? That only happens in transactions, right? In, in, in an exchange. So there's certainly a little bit of my experience in there. But again, like the, the whole play is sort of an experiment. It's... It's uh, stories that I've heard also. The vegetarian thing is real. That really happened. Um, but my friend was on the other end of it. Was on, my friend was the vegetarian. Oh. And was on the other end of this, this person that just could not, ha- like, could not handle it. At, and it. And it turned out, like in the play, that this guy had real trouble with vegetarians because his ex was was a vegetarian and he just had drawn the line no more vegetarians <laughs> i don't know why but that's where he drew the line and i'm like oh, as if that's-, that's where the problem stemmed from <laughs> right your right. lack of eating meat <laughs> that's where it started <laughs> yes so couldn't have been me couldn't have been anything else right you know? no i i i'm interested by i'm you know i i'm interested by other playwrights Mari, and, and I, I'd love to ask other playwrights this question. And, and maybe it'd be a podcast. I don't know. But I'd love to talk to writers and say, are you always in everything you write? Is, is it possible for a writer to not have themselves in it? Because I'm not good enough to do that. But, but I also don't know if that's the point or not either. Like, are, are you always in it? And do you need to be in it for it to be worthwhile? for you. I don't know. Uh, Kevin, are you always in everything that you write? Inevitably. And yet I think it clouds more than it reveals. Oh, typically. interesting. I think if you looked through my, my plays, you would think, ah, oh, that's Kevin. And it's like, it really isn't. There, there have periodically been confessional elements to my writing, but I've never written myself explicitly into a play. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And although it's, it's tough for people to understand that sometimes like moderation. I was dating a vegetarian at the time and she had a, <laughs> she had a really hard time with the play, but it was more like it more served as um, 
we were already on the outs. It was already, sure. do you know? But uh, yeah, that character in moderation is definitely not me. Not, right. not even really, not even remotely. Uh, although I do fill him with some sentiments, you know, some sentiment that I may share, but I think it's inevitable. I think you, you put yourself into the writing. You can't help it. You can't help but do it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can we, can we pause for just a, a second? Cause I hear yeah. um, a disaster happening. Pause, pause away me. and I'll tell a little story. while you do it that I okay. want to tell that's personal about a funeral in my family. Um, uh, and, and I'll, I'll recap it for you when you come back. Okay, good. All right. Yeah. Good. I'll be right. So we're talking, yeah, go for it. So we were talking about, I, I hope he's okay. Maybe the, maybe Mr. Bean landed in, in, in his, uh, <laughs> in his oh, house. Oh no. You know, talking if you about see the bird, light, run away. Yeah, if right. you see yeah, the light, run, run away. The, uh, the, this, this funky urban rural divide, and there's all this awful bigotry running from the rural to the urban, and then vice versa. The, the urban to the rural and all these awful stereotypes. Uh, and when my, when my mother passed away, the funeral was held at a Catholic church uh, with an Indian priest with, uh, from the subcontinent uh, who had a, a very thick accent. Uh, her, my mother's um, husband, my stepfather, Protestant, Protestant family, they were all there. Uh, and, and then when we buried her, her, well, her students did a, did some performance uh, during the wake because she was teaching drama and theater. And then when we buried her, uh, a number of uh, Lakota men came because we buried her on the prairie, on the frozen prairie in February in North Dakota. And a bunch of Lakota men came from the reservation and I had held it together because I'm the oldest son. So I felt like I had to be strong and da da da. And then they started playing the drums and beating the drums and singing, chanting as they buried my mother. And somebody in New York like they have, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not judging New Yorkers here, but it's like, that's not the image they have of a funeral in North Dakota at all. And, and then vice versa, you know, you have people out, out here, you know, and flyover and all the rest have this idea that New York is some sort of Sodom and Gomorrah, <laughs> Babylon, and neither of these uh, impressions is wholly accurate. Um, mm -hmm. but of course the American theater is strongly biased to the urban urbane experience. I would, um, uh, Brandon, I just told the story about the kind of wild postmodern funeral that my mother had that was <laughs> involved out in North Dakota and nobody would really ever expect it. It was actually pretty wild. I, I remember it really, <laughs> really fondly. Um, but, uh, just getting back real quick to this idea of why the American theater has this, why so serious attitude. I think they tend to operate with a, a siege mentality and there's a little bit of a overcompensating. It's like, it's like them against the world. It's them yeah. against the audience. It's them against the rubes at the gates and they need to be taken seriously as artists or else. And of course it's like, it's like that guy at the party uh, who's nervous and everybody can tell he's nervous. And it's like, man, just relax, right. <laughs> just chill out. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just relax. Yeah. It's easier I, I literally heard, I'm not making this up, when Trump was elected, I heard an artistic director, I was in a meeting, I heard a director say, we're going to save the world. Yes. That Talking they really about believe the that. theater. Yes. Yeah. And, and my immediate reaction was, good luck. Good luck. Because, first of all, not that many people are coming to see your place. Okay. And secondly, it's not supposed to do that. It's not supposed to save the world. It's supposed to make the world better. It's not supposed to save it, you know? 
or at least that's my bias toward it. I think. Yeah, I was I was on a podcast with two women talking about uh, Top Girls, and sort of this uh, at the same time in conjunction with uh, meet the Me Too movement, and and I think there was this sort of vitriol and kind of cynicism that came up about men and the you know a lot of assumptions and things, and it was kind of like. Yeah, we have to do these plays and they should be all women and they should be directed by women and it should be female playwrights and which I, you know, am very in support of doing whatever you want to do. But the motivation behind it was something coming from somewhere that wasn't creative. It was something else. It was, you know, your motivations are are from somewhere else. And it was like, hey, wait a second, let's take a step back. Like, aren't we supposed to come into the theater? from all over and just be together and say, oh shit, yeah, that, that is me on stage. And hey, that's you too. And like, whoa, that's, that's really awesome. And we're sitting here laughing together. That's great. Right. Even though this crazy stuff is happening outside, no matter what we might think about that. And, and that's a little, uh, knowing that those are the individuals who are acting and telling the stories, it kind of makes me wonder how long they can sustain mm-hmm. that coming from that place. Whereas, yeah, I, yes, you know, one of the, I, I, I guess it's important to say that, that what, what, what I think that we're, that we are mostly talking about here is nonprofit theater, right? Because commercial theater is not afraid of it in the same way, you know, like you can do the play that goes wrong in commercial theater because, because they think people will, because they'll make money off of it, right? So there's something, there's like this museum mentality behind nonprofit theater that it, that it must be contributing to something that, that is societally important. You know, I, I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but like what I, what I think that the short-sightedness of this for me is that, yeah, but you have to have an audience, in order to do that, right? Yeah, and right. you're forgetting about them. And to a point, it almost seems like you're, it's like you're begrudging toward them. It's like, you know, well, they show up, but they don't get it, right? Um, well, maybe just your play wasn't very good. Or maybe the production wasn't as good as it could have been. Or maybe you're not programming to your audience, right? Like it's, sometimes I think the business side of it would actually help these theaters a little bit. In, in, in thinking about balancing this out uh, budgetarily, right? Um, whereas musicals kind of have a different, you know, Kevin, you said earlier that like, you, you know, Neil Simon is one of the most prolific playwrights ever, right? And wrote in television and film and there's no Neil Simon today though. There, there couldn't be really. Uh, right. I, I guess maybe Louis, Louis C.K. was kind of approaching something like that but then of course uh, that that went away uh yeah and in the theater there really couldn't be and that's because of the the shifting demographics and mamet writes about how there used to be kind of a middle class predominantly jewish theater in new york city that and that's where it sort of was germinated and exists and that that's sort of gone away but mamet also in his in his writing talks about how 
you don't want to be the old man yelling at clouds, right? And there are new iterations of theater always emerging. You could right. argue that a lot of what's <laughs> happening on crypto Twitter right now is a kind of theatrics. And it's all happening behind these, these alt accounts and these anon accounts. And yeah, it's happening on screens. And uh, again, they're not going to win an Obie Award for a lot of this right. stuff, but the stakes are real. The <clears throat> drama is real. And people are having fun and building these very strange network communities. And they do have a quality of theater. If I was somebody who had a trust fund and uh, uh, didn't have children and had nothing but money and time uh, and was status oriented, like a PhD in the performativity of crypto Twitter would be an incredible thing to go and do, but I have no interest in it. Just pump, just pump my bags so we can get back to an all time high so I can fund bad mouth theater company Absolutely. and the mouthing off podcast. Brandon, Give us your plugs. We've done a solid hour. This is really fun. I appreciate your insights. I am, we are in alignment. Where can people find you? What are you working on next? Pitch me. I'm in Portland. So you could find me there. Uh, so come visit, right? Like uh, just, just haunt the, the coffee shops. I'll come around sooner or later. Uh, I'm on the only thing I'm on is on Twitter. So if you want to follow me every once in a while, I'll have something quippy to say. Like once a month, let's say. Uh, I like low quotas. I like low expectations. Uh, and that's <laughs> at Brandon K. McCoy. I, I, you know, I have a comedy podcast, which, which really scratches the comedy itch for me. It's called Highly Unreasonable. I do it with my, uh, my really good friend, Adi Stein, who's also an actor. Uh, and, and it's super silly and ridiculous, and we have a lot of fun. Um, and, and, and then there's my website, brandon-mccoy.com, where all of my plays are, are listed there. And if anybody out there is interested, I'd be happy to send them to you. And I promise that if you reach out, I won't berate you on my notions of comedy and, and why it should be taken more importantly. I, w I won't do my old man yelling at the clouds at you. That's what I <laughs> do. Nobody likes my comedy. As he scratches his beard. <laughs> you know what? I live in Portland now. And my wife said to me, you know, uh, since you have the beard, I think maybe we should invest in some beard oil for you. And I said, you, you look at me right now. Don't you ever say that to me. <laughs> Don't, I will, the day that I put oil on my beard, okay, is the day that I just go full hipster. I buy sh pants that are too tight and too short for me, right? And I start to curl this stuff. And I, we open a chicken farm where we name all the chickens, right? My my sister's husband has a uh, has a beard guy. So call me up when you get a beard guy. <laughs> yes. Amazing, Mari, Amanda, as ever, lots of fun. This I'm was super very fun. excited. Yes, and thank you, Brandon. And uh, find him at brandon-mccoy.com. And we're gonna we're gonna work on other life forms. We're gonna we're gonna put it out. And uh, I think it's gonna be real real exciting, real fun. All right. Thank you all. This was awesome. It was all so right. much fun. Cool. Thank Take care, y'all. Yep. Thank you. See you next time.